Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. And uh, I want to continue the children's story a little bit with an animal story. I've, I have a lot of cat stories, but this particular one is about a dog. And uh, I was jogging one day in Loma Linda, and I heard I was out in the orange groves on Beaumont Avenue about um, near the edges of Loma Linda, and I heard a dog barking, and there was a field there, used to but the orange trees were cut down, and there was no, I couldn't see anything. And I'm jogging by, and I kept looking, and finally I saw this, the nose of a dog jumping up out of a ditch. You could just see his nose. And he was barking as I was running by, and uh, he was, had fallen in this ditch. It was about three or three and a half feet deep. So there was the, far the farmer who owned the orange groves was out working in the, in the orange grove. And, and I said, um, I think there's a dog out there in, in, the di in, the, in the irrigation ditch. And he goes, yeah, he's been there for three days. <laughs> it's like he just he could care less. Because on that road on Bowman Avenue, a lot of people, when they have pets they don't want, they just go out there and it's kind of remote. Uh, on the outside of the city, and they just abandon their animals. And I've actually seen people uh, abandon cats and dogs and so So someone had abandoned this poor dog, and the dog was trying to get water, and there was a little water in the bottom of the ditch, so he jumped down in the ditch and he couldn't get out. So uh, the farmer kind of wandered off, and so I walked over to where the, I was about 100 yards in the field, and I saw this dog and it was scared out of its mind. I mean, when it saw me approach it, it wanted to be helped, but it was like just whimpering and crying. And, and so I jumped down in the ditch and I started talking to the dog and the dog kind of, he didn't want to run because he wanted help, but he kind of like curled up in almost like a fetal position because he was so scared. And I went and I picked up the dog and it started whimpering and crying and just was scared witless. And I picked it up and I put it up over the edge of the ditch. And as soon as I put it down, it took off and started running. And then it looked behind and it saw that I wasn't following it. And I was just standing in the ditch and I was trying to dust myself off because the dog was kind of muddy and dirty. And then the dog turned around and he came back and he just, he licked me, and, and I picked him. Um, well, we walked home. I finished jogging. He followed me, followed me home, and I put, I had some milk. I didn't have any dog food, so I put milk out in a bowl uh, by the front door, and that dog stayed by the front door till the day he died. I mean, he would just sit there quietly. It was an old dog, and he would kind of just sit by the door and people would come up, and he wouldn't even bark when people would come up. He would just sit there. He didn't live very long, but he was, like, really faithful. And if I went for a walk, he'd always go with me. Um, I called him Moses because he, I drew him up out of the water. <laughs> so, but he, did, he only lived about three more months, and he eventually died of, the veterinarian said he had um, distemper, I guess it was. And, uh, but he, because he was so old, he didn't take it very well. Um, but I think that brings, kind of leads us into the title of my sermon is, Why Do We Go to Church? Now, because this is a small church, I can help, ask you to help me with the sermons. It's really nice. And I'd like to ask some of you, why do you go to church? Do any of you have a reason why you go? You were about to raise your hand. Well, do we have a mic? Oh, do we have a mic anywhere? Do we have a microphone? Thank you. Thank you. We go to 
to church to gain strength from each other and to, to strengthen the other people around us. I, that's a really good answer. Yeah, we go to strengthen those around us and to get, gather strength ourselves. That's a really good answer. In mm -hmm. Spanish, please. Gracias a Dios. El sábado yo no puedo quedarme acostada aunque estoy enferma. Yo me vengo y me alivio. No tenemos otra cosa mejor que hacer. Translate at the end. I don't, I don't stay home even if I'm sick. I come and I feel better because we don't have nothing better to do. Amen. I liked what that gentleman said back there. That was sweet. That uh, we come to church to strengthen others and to encourage others, right? And that's a good thing to fellowship together because we never know when we're encouraging someone that um, they really need it the most that day. And without us having been there, maybe that opportunity would have been missed. Sharing. Mary Angeline. For me, there's many reasons why I come to church, but um, one of the biggest ones for me is sometimes we have a very stressful week, and um, the devil always tries to, to, to push you in the, in the wrong side, or he knows what your weaknesses are, and sometimes, you know, it comes to a point that it's, it has been a very, very stressful week, and then when you come to church to meet with your family, you know, is is very uplifting. It, it helps me to, it, it helps me to remind myself that we are just passing through, and um, these are the family that God willing will be able to live together for eternity, and we can love each other, and I can get strength from, from from each each of you, and and that helps me to regroup, and helps me to begin the new week with strength and, and motivation to continue working in the world that is out there. I mean, God has blessed me with an amazing job, but still, the devil never rests. And, um, and sometimes it gets a very hectic week, but it's always it's a blessing to come to meet with family that you love and, and to spend time with them. Well, I have two comments about what Mary Angeli just said. First of all, those who are working to promote and guide and lead the church are attacked by, I think, Satan much more often than those who are quiet and passive and not involved. So people like you, Mary Angeli, who are active in the church tend to get a lot more flack and have a lot more attacks, ministers especially. When I was a missionary in St. Vincent, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think there were 11 Adventist pastors on the island of St. Vincent. And while we were there, five of them had to resign or they were disfellowshipped or they just had so many personal problems arise that they were driven out of the church and they were attacked. I mean, it was, a really, it was really hard for the pastors down there. We had, a real, we had almost a 40% a attrition rate. So it's, it's hard for the leadership of the church, actually. Well, I think that, that, you know, if you'd asked me when I was young why I went to church, I would have said, well, my, par my parents told me I had to go. And then later, I, when I started going to the Adventist church, I went because um, there was a pretty girl that invited me to go. And, and she eventually disappeared, and she found someone much better than I, and... Um, but the food was great, so I kept going back. <laughs> yeah, the, the Adventist church has really great potlucks. But later, I, I, so I kept going out of habit. But, you know, I started asking myself, why, why do we go to church? And I think that, that the answer to that question is the same as the answer to many other why questions. And I think we do what we do out of love. If you're not doing what you do out of love, then you eventually are going to run out of steam and energy. But 
I feel like I have been incredibly blessed in my life, much more so than I deserve, a thousand times over. And so I feel like I owe something, uh, a sense of gratitude. I mean, I've told you the story when, uh, when I first became an Adventist, I was going to the Hill Church, and my two Sabbath school teachers asked me to apply to dental school, and I told them I could not be, ever become a dentist, and they insisted that I apply, so I applied. And they were on the board of directors of the university, and they got me in, wow. in spite of the fact that my grades were atrocious, and uh, there were, I didn't have, I mean, there were so many things going against me, there was no way. I was actually told that there were 1,700 people applying and that I was ranked at the bottom of the list of 1,700 people. But they let me in anyway. And so I got in and I was like, why did, what am I doing here? Why did I, why was I accepted? And I feel like the Lord, when he, to whom much is given, much is accepted. And just this past two, three weeks, there was a student that got kicked out of school because it was a, she was very good in the classroom, but she was not very good in the lab or working with patients. She just would fumble and forget, and she had so much problems, they eventually kicked her out. And I tried working with her and talked to her and talked to her department chairman, and I tried to get her reinstated. We weren't successful, but every time there's a student that gets kicked out or has problems, I feel this urge that I have to go and try to help them. And nine times out of 10, we've helped them. And, and we're able to get them reinstated or, or um, back. And, and you usually have to be really clever about, the goal is to get them back onto the clinic. And so I'll usually suggest to the administrators, well, let them go as an observer or let them go as an assistant. Or just, and if they can get back onto the clinic as an observer or an assistant, slowly they'll, by watching others, they will learn what they need to do and they'll get back on. Now, I know we have a, a nursing student here that went to an extremely difficult nursing school. And uh, they have, every school has a different style of teaching. Some schools, they make the standards really high, and if you don't reach the standard, you're out. Other schools, like Loma Linda, we try actually pretty hard to find a way to get to help the student with whatever problems they're having. And so I personally feel I have a sense, out of a sense of gratitude, that I need to be helping others, helping animals. The Lord God created animals, and I think we're supposed to take care of them and protect them and watch over them. And it surprises me how, how much animals actually trust us. I was out in a field near Clear Lake, California. Oh, this was about 15 or 20 years ago. And there was flooding. And there were cows in the field, and the cows started coming towards me like they expected me to save them from this flood. And um, I've had another time, there was a calf that got on the wrong side of the fence and it couldn't get back in where its mother was. And it was getting hungry and I was, I was taking a walk through the, through the forest there and this little calf saw me and it ran up to me and started following me. And it expected me and eventually I I saw where the gate was, so I just walked around to the gate and opened the gate, and the little calf went through. And, but, you know, animals can trust us, and people can trust us. I think, what's the most difficult thing to win when you're working with other people? Is winning their trust. And you have to be divinely patient and honest and kind. We were, I was driving up today with my mother-in-law, with uh, my wife's mother, Rita Ram Singh, and we were talking about trust. Now, I worked in Bangladesh as a missionary and also in St. Vincent. We were overseas eight or nine years, my wife and I, and 
a lot of the treasures, I'd say, somewhere between 100 and 200 percent of them that I worked with, if it's possible to be 200 percent, they were embezzling money. A lot of the treasures embezzled money. And um, so that was really a difficult situation to be in. I'm actually astonished by the churches here in the United States because there's relatively few treasurers who actually embezzle money here. I mean, I've never met any here in the United States, but overseas it was common practice. So winning trust is a very difficult thing to do. Trust of an animal, trust of your, your peers, trust of a child. Now, how do we win? How do you win trust from others? How do you, what do you, can somebody help me? What do you have to do to win trust from others? Rodney, where's the microphone? Okay. Be consistent in your character. Okay. So how on earth do you become consistent? By being truthful and real. Okay. Is it, is it humanly possible for us to be consistent? Uh, some humanly people, possible. Not me, but... Not me either, okay. <laughs> okay. I, uh, Averill Harriman, who was the ambassador plenipotentiary under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he said, Harriman said, the temptation to give a favorable answer is irresistible. He would meet with prime ministers and kings and heads of state as representatives of the president, and he was always tempted to give a favorable answer and he said it was irresistible. And, and I think that, that human beings, we're not very good at resisting temptation. So how on earth do we get mother? You have... I want to say good morning, Chich. I'm just talking about temptation and trusting. But I want to tell you this. Last week when we went by Katrina, I went to the, to the washroom, and as I went to the washroom, there was this purse on the ground. It's a little purse, like what the little children use, and I took it up. I opened the purse, and there was lots of money in the purse. Now, I'm this little Trinidadian who don't have a cent but that never come in my mind to say, well, I'm going to take this. I took, I wanted, I saw a set of little children just leave the washroom, so I wanted to give them it, but then I said, no, the children doesn't have so much money. So I went up to the front and I met them. She was working in the place and I said, I said, I just found this purse here. And a lady was talking to her, she said, that's mine. She said. <laughs> She said, did you find it in the third um, stall? Yes. I said, yes. So then I know, well, it is hers. So I give her her purse. She said, my husband just gave me money to go. It's my birthday. And she, he just gave me money to go shopping. And I have to make groceries and all, all sorts of things. Oh, my God. So I just give her, and I went away shopping in the rest of the store. And then she came looking for me. She said, you are the lady who found the person? I said, yes. She said, oh, I want to give you something. I said, no, 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 I don't want anything. She said, no, nobody wouldn't do that for me. I mean, if they find my purse, nobody wouldn't give it back to, to, to the person. They would keep it for themselves. So then my um, daughter-in-law mother was there, and she said, she's a Seventh-day Adventist. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> God is good. So temptation, if you don't know the Lord, you would have lots of temptation and you would, you would not be able to, to, to help yourself. You would do what you think is right, but that's not right. Temptation is you have to pray, and God is good. So I, I want to thank the Lord today that I could have done this. Thank you. I think that, that what's been revealed or understood by me is that in our own strength, 
we can't resist temptation. I mean, eventually we go downhill. And I know even in my own family, I've had relatives that were physicians and, and had important positions. And they were very noble when they were younger, but when they got older, they started slipping and drinking and drugs. And I've had, I'm in my dental school class, I've had two of my classmates that lost their, their license because of alcohol or drugs. And uh, so actually um, three of my classmates, we had a class of 94, and three of them have lost their license, which is, you know, if you lose that, you can't work, and uh, it's, life gets really difficult. Go ahead. Do you know George Diaz? Anyway, uh, someone needs prayer. Dr. George Diaz, he has a, a drinking problem, and he has his own practice in Riverside, just off of La Sierra on the right. He graduated from Loma Linda. He's not a Seventh-day Adventist anymore, but he needs prayer. Well, I'm re I was reading through the book Education by Ellen White. I'm still reading through this. And I'll go back and read chapters I've read before, and every time I read it, it's a different chapter than the one I read before because there's new revelations in it. And I'd actually like to say a word or two about Ellen White here. Now, what's different, at least from my perspective, about the Adventist church from any other church? I think that, that we have been given a prophet, um, a fairly modern-day prophet in Ellen White, now, but way beyond this is that God has promised the Holy Spirit to all of us. Christ said, I will send you the Holy Spirit. Christ didn't go to Peter and say, okay, now, uh, come as I, uh, this is only for your ears. I, uh, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, but it's just for you because I want to make you the head of the church. No, he addressed everyone. And the Holy Spirit is for all of us. Uh, in the book of Acts, it says, it's for you and your children and those who are afar off. So, and, and I think we as Adventists take that seriously. So, this is a church of prophets. Not one prophet, but all of you are prophets. I think all of you are inspired, can be inspired by the Holy Spirit. In everything that you do, when you go to work, you'll be inspired to know how to take care of your clients or your patients. And that's an incredible promise. It says in the scripture reading today that God will drive out our enemies before us and no one will be able to stand against you. And I've actually seen that happen many, many times. I've... Um, and I've told you this before, too. I've had at least four department chairmen try to fire me at this school, and then when they try to fire me, they themselves get fired or have to resign, or they're, uh, most of them aren't there anymore. And I feel like the Lord is protecting me over and over again. Or my, I don't have it with me, but my, my cell phone. Maybe I should turn on my lapel mic here. Now it's on, but I'll keep using this one. Um, but I've lost my cell phone about five or six times. Like when I'm at work, I'll leave it on a counter, and then I'll see, work with a patient or a student, and then I'll wander away and leave it there. And I'll get home, and it's gone. And I'll go back to work in the morning, and it's still sitting there on the counter. And there's a 1,000 patients a day that come through the dental school. And there's four... four almost 500 students, and there's probably 70 or 80 staff there on any given day. There's a lot of people there. And I've been trying really hard to lose my cell phone, and I just can't seem to do it. <laughs> and I talk to other people. Um, I have a dear friend who loses things all the time. They're not lost, they're stolen. 
Everything is stolen. He, oh, they stole my car. They stole my truck. They stole my computer. They stole this. They stole that. And it, and it makes me start wondering, you know, maybe this person isn't being protected by the good Lord. And so I think that we need, there, in the scripture reading today, it says that God will drive out our enemies before us and he, no one will be able to stand against us. I take that, that, very, that promise very seriously. And I take it serious for you, especially those of you who are physicians, because you are in a battle with disease, and disease is your enemy. God has said the enemy will not... Now, this is maybe going a bit far, but the enemy will not be able to stand before you. In other words, I expect you to be very successful physicians and be able to, and nurses, and to heal people who otherwise would not have been able to have been healed. And, and I'm sure, in fact, I'd like to hear you, some of you come up and tell stories about how the God, after you get more experience, about how God has guided and led you. So you have some sermons to give us in a few years. And uh, so, but getting back to why do we go to church? Why are we here? I was reading in this book, The Schools of the Prophets, and she talks, let me read to you what she says about the schools of the prophets. This is the book, Education by Ellen White. In both the schools of the prophets and the home, of the Israelites, much of the teaching was oral, but the youth also learned to read the Hebrew writings and the parchment rolls of the Old Testaments were open to their study. The chief subjects of their study were the law of God with the instructions given by Moses, sacred history, sacred music, and poetry. In the records of sacred history were traced the footsteps of Jehovah. Okay, so if you if we go back and we read the Old Testament, it is a the story of how God has interacted with mankind, and there are lots of instances where God, like God, came down and talked to Adam and Eve when Ab when God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He came down and talked with Abraham about what he was about to do. It says in the Bible that God does nothing without telling his servants the prophets. And so he wanted to consult with Abraham, or at least let him know what was going to happen, give him a heads up. And I believe God still does that today. I still believe he communicates with us, he guides us, he shows us what to do. And I think that's a wonderful, wonderful promise. Um, one of the founders of the Adventist Church, William Miller, before he became a serious Christian, he was a deist, which is a philosophical or religious theory. Deism teaches that God created the universe, but once he created it, he stepped back and said, well, you're on your own, uh, enjoy, and I have other things to do. So he didn't get involved with mankind after creation. He left it to evolution or whatever. And nothing could be further from the truth. God, if you read the Old Testament, God is constantly intervening and constantly guiding. Like Gideon, the battle of Gideon. Gideon has how many men? A few hundred men against tens of thousands of invaders. And his weapon was a torch in a clay pot. And he, they lit torches inside a clay pot, and then they stood around the perimeter of the, uh, the, the camp of the enemy at night, and they broke the pot so you could see the, the torches, and then they blew on trumpets. Now, how many times have you scared away an enemy by blowing on a trumpet? I mean, it's like... 
you know, in your dreams, you know. So I think the Lord, you know, he scared all these people, all the enemy, and they ran away, and they actually killed each other. So, I mean, that's an instance where God is intervening. But if you read all the stories, read them from the point of view, how is God intervening to protect and guide? And you'll see over and over and over again, he's guiding, leading, protecting, encouraging, and strengthening. And I expect that kind of strength and wisdom when I go to work, when I talk to, to people um, in everything I do, I'm counting on that kind of guidance to know what to say and what to do. I mean, about a month ago, um, some students were complaining that the tuition was a little bit high. Is it high in medical school too? Well, our, our tuition is about 100000 for the U.S. students, and for the international students, it's like $125,000 a year. And they have to borrow money to go to school. And so the typical dental student is, is close to somewhere between four dollars and $500,000 in debt when they graduate. It's just an unbearable debt. And so the students are complaining. And I went... So I sat down and I wrote a little two-page article about how we could lower the costs of running the school. And I went and gave it to the dean. And I've done this a few times before, and they're, they're usually ignored. But I just got an email from the dean, and he wants to come in and talk to me about the proposal I wrote for lowering costs. And um, I was astonished. It's a very simple idea. The, the major cost of running the school is paying the staff. We have 200 doctors that work there, mostly part-time. They don't get paid much when you're part-time. It's mostly almost like a mission service. I think they pay them, I don't know, they pay them maybe double minimum wage or something like that. They don't get paid much. But, they mostly, but that, the major cost is all the staff that has to be paid. And so I said, why don't we start a residency program, a two to three, I said three year master's degree in dental education. And we have dentists who've graduated would come back and go through residency and learn how to be teachers because there's a shortage. There's a thousand openings for professors of dentistry. At, there's like a hundred almost 100 dental schools in the United States, and there's a 1,000 openings, for, and there's nobody that can fill these or wants to fill them. So I said, well, let's start a residency program and start training people. There's a need, and maybe, and what we, the, the goal of this program is to, we're gonna use these graduate students to be teachers on the clinic and guide the students kind of like super, like, well, they'll be residents, actually. And we're going to use them to guide the students. And every doctor will have one or two residents working under them. And that way, the doctor can multiply their efforts. That's what hospitals do. You have a chief, and you might have half a dozen or a dozen residents working under every chief. So it's actually a medical model that that we could follow. So I'm saying, let's Let's do what the hospitals do and, and use the residents to do a lot. I mean, I went in for a, a, when I turned 55 and I was working for the church, they told me I had to get a um, colonoscopy. It was a requirement when you're 55. And I found the best gastroenterologist and he said, yes, he'll do it. And when I went in the day to have the, have the colonoscopy done, a resident was there to do it. So a resident actually did it. It worked out pretty well, thank God. And, uh, but, you know, I think we should, we should be thinking about how we can lower costs and, and make the, the dental school and everything we do more efficient. But I was, I was surprised the dean wants to talk to me about that some more. But, I, but if I get a good idea, I know it's not mine. I believe it's from the Lord. The Lord guides us and gives us wisdom to know what to do and how to do it. And like, I have a gardener that I help, that I hire once, 
once or twice a month. He rides a bicycle over. He's 72 years old, and he lives not far away, and he rides a bicycle. And his bicycle creaks and cranks. And So while he's working on the garden, I'm working on his bicycle. And last week, I, or two weeks ago, I put a new chain on because his chain... You can actually, if you take the old chain and compare it to a new chain, the old chain is usually stretched like a full inch. And when they, get, when they stretch like that, they don't shift very well. So I took it off, and yeah, it was longer, so I put a new one on. And the crankshaft is wobbling, so we have to put in a new uh, bottom bracket bearing. So I'll do that next time. So, but nobody taught me how to do all these things. I just kind of learned the hard way how to do it. And it's surprising. Um, and I, I actually feel inspired. I know this sounds crazy, but I had a Ford Taurus. And I noticed that, that when I first got it at 55 miles an hour, it was running at about, I think it was 1,800 RPM or 2,000 RPM, something like that. And then after a while, it would go up to 2,200 RPM at the same speed, and it would never go down. And so I went to the dealer and said, I don't think it's shifting into overdrive. And the, they drove it around and said, no, it's fine. Everything's fine. And I said, no, everything is not fine. At 55 miles an hour, it's at 2,200 RPM, and it's supposed to be at 2,000 RPM. Go look it up in the manual, and you'll find out. Okay. So they went back, and they looked, yeah, and they go, yeah, it's supposed to be. So I have to tell the service writers and the mechanics how to fix my car and what's wrong with it. And, and it's like, why is it that I have to tell these experts what to do, how to do their job? And that happens to me all the time. In fact, I even go into the kitchen and tell my wife how to cook. <laughs> uh, that's not received very well, I have to admit. <laughs> Because she is a really, really good cook. But I still feel at liberty to give her advice. I, um, that's a nice way of looking at it. She doesn't see it that way. <laughs> she sees it quite the other way. But I do believe that, that the good Lord can inspire us and guide us and show us what to do. Now, I want to get back to the school of the prophets. It says... In the records of sacred history were traced the footsteps of Jehovah. Now remember, when you read the Bible, you're looking for how has God interacted to be a blessing to whoever he's working with or whatever situation they're in. So that's a question you have to ask yourself. The great truth set, by, set forth by the types in the service of the sanctuary were brought to view, and faith grasped the central object of all that system, which is the Lamb of God, which is to take away the sin of the world. Now, I started thinking about how the schools of the prophets were run. They had to be given instructions in the Ten Commandments, in the teachings of Moses. What were the central themes of the Bible stories? This all had to be explained to them. Everything had to be explained to them. And it dawned upon me that the people of Israel had to be taught everything, starting at ground zero. They didn't know these things. They didn't understand them. They didn't know the meaning of them. They didn't know the purpose of them, like the sacrifice of the lamb in the sacrificial service. Did the people understood what that meant? No, they didn't. It represented the sacrifice of Christ. All these things had to be explained that a Savior would come, and which was represented by the lamb that was sacrificed. And the people were slow to grasp that the, this lamb was going to be sacrificed. Christ was eventually sacrificed by us. And as I'm reading through this book, Education, I realize that not only the people of Israel, but all of us need to be guided, instructed. How things work has to be explained to us. The meaning has to be explained to us. We are all very ignorant creatures. We need God's constant guidance so that we can learn 
to be nice to animals. I mean, when I was a young kid, I wasn't nice to animals. I just, you know, I, I could care less. I didn't give them any attention. If there was a bird trapped in a thicket, I didn't stop to help it. I was, I don't know, I was a kid, you know. But as I got older, and when I became a Christian and realized, you know, God loves me and I don't deserve it, and, and out of gratitude I should be nice to people and animals and other things, and, and so you slowly learn how to be a human being. I am afraid to say that without God's guidance, without his instruction, his protection, his encouragement, his whispering in our ear what to say and do, we're no better than the animals. We cannot be even rise to the level of being human without God's help and guidance. When I listen to the politicians attack each other in Washington, D.C., and both sides are attacking each other, they're criticizing each other, it hurts my heart to see that. You don't make people better by criticizing them all the time. We all need a little bit of criticism. That's what we get married for. That's a wife's job, isn't it? You know, to tell us what we're doing wrong. Uh, um, so I keep my wife very busy in that, very busy in that department. But, um, you know, we do need constructive criticism, but constant criticism is actually destructive. Christ said, if you call somebody a fool, you will have to answer for it, what, in the gates of hell. So criticism tends to be, too much of it is, it's like salt. A little bit of salt is good. But if you put too much salt in something, it ruins the food, and your blood pressure goes up. And so when I listen to the politicians, they're all criticizing each other from both sides. And I'm going, you know, these people don't understand the basics of Christianity. We're supposed to encourage people, say something nice, find a way to help them and bless them. And... I think all of you can think of times when you had to encourage someone. You, you met someone who was sick or, or impoverished or was going through hardships, and you have to find a way to encourage them. And who can give us the strength to do that? It's easy to point out what people are doing wrong. That's a, very, a natural human skill. But finding a way to encourage people is very, very difficult. That's... A div the, if you can say something to encourage others, it's the evidence of divine grace. Now, I've, I've heard a lot of politicians criticize the administration of our government because they're not doing enough to help the refugees on the border who are coming across. But how many of these people who are criticizing have ever gone down there and actually worked in a soup kitchen or spent nine years working overseas? with these people before they came here. None of them, essentially. You know, they're quick to criticize, but I don't see them going down there and working and helping and changing diapers and working in soup kitchens or, or trying to dress wounds or anything like that. But they're very critical. But as Christians, we are called to, to do these things, to, to go out and help, help the poor and the sick to encourage them. That's why so many Seventh-day Adventists are doctors and nurses and healthcare workers and social workers and mothers and teachers and fathers. We're here to, to help and be a blessing. Now, I'd like to, like to close by saying now don't get, get worried here, but we all desperately need God's instructions. And we have to be searching for how is God trying to lead us and guide us and instruct us. And when you can discover that, and this happens with every patient you see, every person you talk to, you have to learn to be diplomatic and kind 
And um, being diplomatic is not something that I am very good at. I actually am very good at criticizing, finding fault with others. It's one of my gifts, I think, seeing the faults in others. But that's not really a blessing. And it took me a long time to realize that that was not a real gift. That was a curse. It's like when my wife asked me, she gets dressed up to go out. We're going out for dinner, going to church, or whatever we're going to do. And she says, how do I look? How do you answer that question? Mary Angeli, what would you say? How would you advise your son if, if he was about to get married? How would you advise him to answer that question? I think we can find something positive in everything. And um, just because you don't like it, that doesn't mean that it's, it's not right. And, and many times he's wearing something that personally I might not like, but it's not me who's wearing it, it's him. And he feels comfortable with it, and it's not immoral, and it's not something non-cultural accepted. It's okay. Because and then if he likes and if he likes and say yeah you look great based on based on what he likes to if he if he asks me how would I think he knows what I think but if he's asking how do I look then that's a different story it's not about me it's about him and if he looks nice decent there's always something positive to say and make him feel, you know, make him see that he made a good choice, that he looks nice, it could have been worse. So if he's decent, if he looks normal, like cultural, accept that, it's a great decision. So say, I will say it's a great decision. You make a good choice. It looks good on you. You know, just a, not, not saying lies, lies, but be honest and find something positive on his side, not what I think, but it's on him. Like uh, when my daughter dressed, I said, you know, it's not about me, it's about how she's, the choices she makes. And if it's decent, she's nice, I say, oh, you make great choice, you look, it look great, you know, it's nice. So I think we should spend more time on, on finding positive things to others, because it's not about us, it's about others. All right. Oh, Dr. Trott there. Hi. Enjoy your sermon. Um, you were talking about politics and when President Trump was running for president and Dr. Ben Carson, a Seventh-day Adventist, was running against him. Do you remember how Dr. Ben Carson never spoke really against Trump and Trump said, well, I don't know why you're so different, but if when I win, I'm going to hire you to work with me, and he did. Um, you were talking about a woman saying, how do I look? Well, maybe it's not your, your favorite choice of outfit, like you're thinking, oh, I really don't like that one. But you could just say, well, it's not my favorite, but it's comfortable for you. How do you feel? I mean, I want you to enjoy it. All right. Well, I've, I've learned, and, and maybe I'm exaggerating just a little bit, but when my wife asked me that, there's, the only thing I can say is you're irresistibly beautiful. That's awesome. <laughs> yes. Or I'll say the beauty of your character and your kindness shows through so that I don't even, when I look at you, that's all I see. I don't even notice what you're wearing because the in, you're so beautiful on the inside, it doesn't matter what you wear on the outside. So anyway, you have to kind of think of some, do you think that would be a good thing to say? Okay, compliment their character. And, and I mean, because the truth be told, there are people in this room, in fact, all of you, who have, I think, really wonderful characters. You're all wonderful people, and it shows through in your smile. It shows through in your demeanor and the way you interact with other people, and you can't hide that. You could disguise yourself and wear a burqa, and it would still show through, you know. <laughs> so 
I think the character, you know, it radiates outward, and people can sense that. I mean, I don't know how many times I've gotten on an elevator with one other person, and they start telling me all their life story, or <laughs> I have cancer, or this or that. They just start pouring all this out, and I'm, you know, why do, I think people must, when, if you are kind, people can see that. They can tell it. Animals can tell. I mean, I went out for a walk. My wife and I went out for a walk. It was about two months ago now. We went up to the end of Lawton Road, and there was a cat there in the bushes, and it came out and started brushing against our leg. And we walked about three-quarters of a mile home, and it followed us all the way home. Now, I've heard of dogs following you, but I've had lots of cats follow me home. And uh, there was a little tag on the, on the animal, and it was a phone number on there. And so we called up the phone number, and we found that it was living not far from where it started following us. And so we drove it back and gave it to its owner. And um, they were kind of surprised that their cat had followed somebody home. But <laughs> I think your character shines through. And animals can tell. People can tell. And... We don't, I didn't, I wasn't born that way. I think that's a gift that we're all given when we become Christians. So I believe it's very important to become a Christian. And uh, so that God can give us the wisdom to know what to say, to encourage others, and to be a blessing to them. So in closing, I come to church so that I can receive divine guidance and blessings, learn how to be a gentleman, learn how to be a kind person, and to encourage others. Now, there's a lot more reasons, as Mary Angeli expressed. In fact, I'd like to hear a sermon from her on all the good reasons for going to church. That would be a great sermon. But I believe that we are made better people by the grace of God, and may he bless you all. Let us bow our heads for prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we are grateful for the church and the instruction, the wisdom, and the guidance you give to us through the church. It is your chosen instrument to instruct us, to guide us, and to transform us into decent human beings. We all need that. We appreciate it. And help us to understand your guidance and instruction better that we might become better Christians. For these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.